Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and we are thrilled to welcome Susanna Barkataki, a trailblazing yoga leader and visionary to the Motivational Mondays podcast. Now, with her deep understanding of the roots of yoga and her dedication to social justice, Susanna has been transforming the world of yoga and just with inspiration inspiring countless individuals and stories along the way, and we are, we're all much better for it. So I'm so happy to have her here today on Motivational Monday. Susanna, welcome. Thank you so much, Corey. I'm honored and excited to be here. It's my pleasure. And we were just talking before I started recording, and I was sharing with you that how I even found out about you was recently, there was a post that a friend of mine shared on Instagram, and uh, it was a very enlightening post for me, which was you were talking about, and it was kind of specifically like the the Western appropriation of yoga uh, as almost like this commercial gym membership thing, <laughs> you know, when there's so much more from a cultural standpoint and like an, an ancient practice standpoint. So can you talk a little bit about what you meant in that post, what you were sharing in that post? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, yoga comes from brown and black people, right? It comes from India and was codified and developed and also Africa. And there was conversation between Africa and, and India thousands of years ago. And for thousands of years, it was a practice that was one seeking liberation. That was one where individuals were connecting to the divine in various ways. Hmm. But it wasn't just a practice about our physical bodies. In fact, it was more about all the other aspects of ourselves, our souls, our spirits, our communities. And so the way that yoga is practiced in the US, which is very recent, you know, it's only the last 50 maybe years is really watering down what yoga is and misrepresenting this ancient wisdom practice. Mm. Yes, you even talked about, I mean, (laughs) in your post, I mean, I could sense the frustration actually with the element in which, uh, the, the level in which it has been so commercialized. I mean, I think you mentioned, you know, like in order to like professionally teach yoga, there's like this whole now certification process in which, you know, you have to certify and register with the, the something organization of the yoga association or something that just clearly did not exist when your ancestors invented this amazing thing. So, um, you know, the component of the commercialization at that part, I'm trying to understand. So, the, so you, so there's a, a professional union in which you can't like really teach yoga unless you join some kind of organization. Is that sort of what that was about? Right, exactly. So it's true, you know, in the in the tradition, there's something called the Guru Parampara, where the teacher passes down their knowledge over many, many years to a student. And it's not a formalized system, but it is one of respecting your elders. And it's very, it's that's how yoga was transmitted for thousands of years. Hmm. When it came to the West, which was about a hundred, you know, and thirty years ago, with uh, the Parliament of World Religions, there too it was like a teacher, you know, and um, Swami Vivekananda 
teaching to many, many people in the United States, mostly white, but not only. And in fact, one of the reasons that he moved from the East Coast over to the West Coast is because on the East Coast, he wasn't, it was looked down upon to teach folks of color who were wanting to come to mm. teachings. And so we already had, you know, like the, all of the complexity of racism and the oppressive systems in the U.S. connecting with yoga as it came into the West. And then when he moved to, he actually set up a location in Los Angeles. What happened there was movie stars, people in show business were the mm. ones who were coming and taking these classes and learning. And those folks understandably kind of connected it with their focus on the body, their focus on physical appearance. And out of that, only about 30 years ago, sprung up a regulating body on yoga called the Yoga Alliance. And more recently, there's um, Sitar, which is like the Yoga Therapy Alliance. And these were, I think, well-intentioned, but fundamentally flawed organizations mm -hmm. that were composed of people who said, this is a valuable practice. We want to make sure to preserve it and, and organize it in some way. But they were primarily white folks, you know, and mm -hmm. they didn't ask the people from whom yoga had come for their input. And so for many years, there was there were certain hoops you had to jump through that were totally different than the group parampara system that had always been in place, which has its own flaws, right? Like there's always, when there's power, there's always complexity. Right. But what ended up happening is now we have these statistics. It's something like, uh, I think it's 80% of yoga practitioners in the West are white, mm. uh, around 7% are black, and around... 4% are Asian, right? So we've mm. had this flip of, yeah. and then teachers, it's it's even less, right? So wow. that means under 20% are folks of color. Wow. I mean, that's fascinating because you began by saying it was created by <laughs> brown people. And then all of a sudden it sort of gets re, sort of reimagined as this sort of elitist Right, that's the word I think of. In fact, I just um, my my friend who I mentioned, uh, Onika, I interviewed her just earlier today, and we were having this conversation as she and I are both African Americans. And I thought, isn't that funny? How, yeah, my interpretation of yoga, like years ago when it was introduced to me, was that oh, I can't afford that. Mm. That was literally the first thing I thought because I thought, well, I had to pay all this money for yoga classes, and then I thought, well, I have to have you know the Lululemon, as I mentioned again. I got to have like the you know the the, the pants and the, you know and and the mat and all the accoutrement. I got to have the. I mean, I really thought, and then I'm like, well, you know, if you're a broke person and you're kind of a, a starving artist, you're kind of like pushed out of it, right? Or financially, if you're not flexible, or you're disabled, right? Or bigger bodied. Right. And I mean, my family members, so my aunts and uncles say to me all the time, Susanna, it's so wonderful you do yoga. I can't do it. I don't belong. I don't fit in any mm. yoga class. You're, and that's wow. so heartbreaking to me because it's like, this is your practice. I've learned it from you. And this is why I think it's so important that we change the understanding of what yoga is, both who it's for, right? And who belongs in mm -hmm. a yoga space, which is really everyone. And then what yoga is, because for me, you know, you're the source of my leadership actually comes back to my practice. Um, yoga mm -hmm. is the best tool I've found for self-awareness and then being able to lead and guide others from that place of 
awareness and really truth. And so for folks to have access to that ability to kind of unlock all of the power that they may carry and want to share and be able to share with the world, to me, that is is why I do what I do. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's interesting because I've heard a few people who do practice yoga in a very pure sense of it, not the commercialized aspect. They often talk about, well, one of the comments I've gotten before is like, you know, people think you have to have all the special stuff, like I mentioned, and you can actually practice some components of yoga really anywhere. If you're, if you're talking about breath work, for example, right, which is a component of it as well, like that's something that you can do. You don't have to kind of like join a membership at a yoga studio and and do some of those components. So, I mean, is that the work you do with Ignite? I would I don't know for sure, but I imagine is that sort of what fueled you to sort of kind of lead this awakening of like, hey, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, or <laughs> here's what it's really supposed to be. Is that how you sort yeah. of, it? yeah. Yeah. I was a teacher before I did this. I taught high school and elementary school and mm-hmm. I learned so much actually from be- being a teacher. But one of the things I learned is to make sure no one ever felt like they're doing it wrong. It's more yeah. like there's so much more to it. And let's do that. So you get the benefit. And then so yoga itself is preserved, right? Mm-hmm. And in its fullness. So it's, there's eight limbs of yoga. There's the physical, which is called asana, but there's also the yamas and niyamas, which are yogic ethics. So basic principles, quite universal. They're similar in most religious or kind of faith traditions, like non-harming, truthfulness, not stealing. And they go deep also into like devotion to the divine or self-inquiry. And then you've got breath work, pranayama, um, focusing. So whatever you're doing, like if you're talking or taking a sip of tea or water, being really mindful, that's a practice, meditation, and then samadhi, liberation, joy is a practice as well. And so there's so much more to yoga. You could practice it and never sit on a, a cushion or practice mm. on that. You, in fact, wow. my biggest teachers, most of their yoga is activism. It's in the world. Um, my teacher Shankarji is in Bihar and he, in India, there's the caste system, which is very oppressive. And although mm. it's technically, you know, no, no longer a legal institution, it's of course like racism here still yeah, it's ingrained. very rampant. Yeah. And so he works sharing yogic tools in villages and communities for liberation, right? So his work is like the spiritual teachings, but also making roads, digging wells, um, guiding villages to self-determination. And he's my main teacher who's like, this is yoga, right? Yoga is action in the world. And you need to go back, get out of India, go home to where you're from and (laughs) do what I'm doing in your communities. That's, that was why I started teaching. Yeah, that's amazing because I I was just like you almost answered the question I hadn't even asked yet, which was going to be what what leads you or what has led you uh, to merge yoga with the social justice components. Yeah. And, you know, that's you just laid out like those elements are there. Mm -hmm. They're already there. I mean, the first principle, yogic principle is ahimsa, which means non-harming. And the last of yogic ethics is Ishvara Panidana, which is like um, sovereignty or devotion to the divine. Mm. But to practice both of those, it's like non-harm for ourselves, for each other, for our communities. We also have to create sovereignty for others. So there you have social justice, right? There Mm. you're beyond just personal, I'm going for liberation to everyone deserves to experience 
the conditions that can create liberation for them, which may be different than my conditions, right? Right, right. And so there's a almost like an ethical mm, call within yoga if you really go on that path, Hmm. yoga ethics, to to work for the freedom and the liberation of others on their terms, not just on our own terms. Well, when I read about your work and, and research what you're doing, uh, the, the, the terminology for me I had not heard of before, the idea about decolonizing yoga. And uh, I had not uh, heard the word or really seen the word used in that context, you know, where it's like, oh my gosh, it made me think of so many things that Mm-hmm. we would benefit from if they were decolonized because yeah. that is where all this sort of happens when things get appropriated by other cultures. So, I mean, we've kind of tapped into it, but talk about the idea of like, you know, decolonizing yoga so that it is actually more able to be embraced by everyone. Right. I think for me, it first came honestly, because Corey, I had to decolonize myself. Like, <laughs> I, I hear you, right? I had internalized the idea that I didn't belong. You know, I'm for folks Mm. who are listening and can't see me. I'm, and even if you can, you wouldn't necessarily know, but I'm small, brown, light brown skin, um, rather round, you know, curvy, medium, medium sized person, not very flexible. And I have a, a few disabilities, right? So I don't look like the traditional, not traditional, let me say that differently, the stereotypical yoga teacher. And so at first I wasn't getting, I came back from India, right? From having these incredible teachings for years with my teacher and no studio wanted to hire me, Mm. couldn't get a job. And no one cared about the, all of that experience, right? With swamis or teachers who'd come out of caves just recently, it didn't matter. And so I thought, well, maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I need to do more or learn more or, you know, take certain trainings. And it never really shifted until one day I was coming home from my family's house. My aunt was having a fire puja, which is like a ceremony. And it was so powerful and had meditated and done some deep yogic practices. And uh, I was feeling so good. And I got home and opened up my computer and saw this like yoga festival happening in my town, all white. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? I don't think it's me. Yeah, yeah. There's something else happening here that's systemic, that's structural. And so mm-hmm. it's that for me that decolonization is, is like, what are the structures or the systems of oppression that have been put on us perhaps because of, you know, it's easier to co-opt and steal and take a practice if you unseat the people that it's from. Mm from a place of authority in that practice, right? It makes it easier for Lululemon or these different companies to sell yoga when they act like they are the ones who are the experts in it. And for me, decolonization starts there. It starts with like, is this true? You know, asking those kinds of questions, who is running the narrative on power and control here? What does true leadership look like? You know, like, actual leadership because when I look at the yoga teachers in my life, the ones that I've learned from, they're not out there telling people what to do. They're just quietly living. They're guiding by action, mm. by living in a practice. And that yeah. uh, that for me is a lot of what decolonizing yoga is, is not so much holding up a sign or a mat and saying, hey, you know, I do yoga or you should do yoga, but more like really living it in its mm. form. I mean, that is so 
it's profound. It's loaded. I mean, it's got, there's so much there because so many other things apply to that. I mean, I, for example, had a conversation just um, uh, a week ago about Justin Timberlake because I, I work in music and, you know, we were having a, a music conversation. And um, someone said, well, what does he do? And then some, and the thread said, what does he really do anyway? Or, or no, he, he got Grammy nominations or something. They said, well, what did he get Grammys for? And someone wrote, oh, uh, for imitating black people. And that, yeah. was, and that was like, and it was a snide comment, but it was a comment that when I read it, I thought, hmm. And it made me look deeper because I thought, you know, he definitely, he and other white artists have definitely benefited from the sound of those who created those sounds and the origins of that music. And they've benefited from it. But then I don't see them on the front lines when it comes to marching for George Floyd or, you know, racial inequities that we may be experiencing. Like, I don't see them doing that. So they can kind of do the fun part without putting in the work on the other hand. And so it's in, in a way, what you just said made sense because that's like decolonization of music, for example, <laughs> would apply in that same context. Of yes. how other other people have appropriated sounds and benefited without really maybe doing the work of that culture. Absolutely. And in many ways, I think they what a white person or someone from the dominant culture can do with and they get celebrated for when a black person, you know, in the music context or Indian person in yoga context does it, they sometimes get censure or mm. critique, right? Yeah. For example, if we take the bindi, which is like a dot that uh, a lot of Indian femme folks wear in mm -hmm. the center of our foreheads, and it can be just fashion, it can be beauty, but it also has a deeper meaning of connecting yeah. to the third eye. And when I or other people who are Indian wear bindis, you know, I've been called a dot head, I've been harassed walking home from a, a temple, you know, wearing a bindi. A, student in a school, one of my friend's kids recently was called diehead. And so we get critiqued, whereas models or folks who are white, you know, I can list yeah. of names. They're like, oh, they're so avant-garde. They're so boho. They're so unique, right? They're having their, their hip girl era wearing the same thing and they get elevated while oh, yeah. they get suppressed, right? So yeah. It's, it's all part of that systemic oppression and, you know, interlocking systems like Bell Hooks <laughs> named it. It's like racist, hetero, you know, white supremacist patriarchy. It's all of those systems yeah. together. So to me, it's like the most urgent thing is, yes, unpacking it in our own minds and then working systemically in, the, in our lanes, like in the places that make sense to us. For me, it's yoga because that's my cultural heritage, but also working alongside other communities, right, who are sharing that same journey, although it's a different, different, maybe a different path to decolonization mm. and, and liberation. And yeah. there's so yeah. many connections, too, between like Baird Rustin, who learned from Gandhians and nonviolent activists in India, and then brought those tools and skills back to the civil rights movement. And so a lot of the civil rights movement and even, you know, Martin Luther King's writings in some of his essays. Right. Peaceful people, and... Yeah. And he'll reference yogic tools that are tools of liberation, mm -hmm. which to me is so powerful around, around those connections. Yeah. And I think it's also important to say that, you know, we use the term often the appropriation word and it, and it, it has a very negative connotation, but 
Yeah, and, and there's examples like, for example, um, the music artist I used another musical reference. Pharrell Pharrell Williams was on the cover of I think it was Rolling Stone, and he had a big, beautiful Native American headdress, and it was just fashion. And so, of course, it like really pissed off like you know <laughs> half the Native Americans, and then other half the Native Americans thought, well, it's kind of cool because he's actually showing yeah. that he thought that something from our culture was beautiful enough to right. have it on his cover on his head or on his throne. But the, but the, the misconnect is why, mm. if there's no why, then you just use something that's very important to me culturally as a hat. Yes. And, <laughs> right. It would have been nice if I'm wearing this because I met the chief right. of, and it was a gift and I want, you know, and there's a story there. So I think appropriation in itself is, you know, misunderstood. I think it can be okay if we right. are connected. And of course that would bring us to mindfulness, right? Mm-hmm. Like just being aware of all that you're doing because it all is sort of connected actions, intention and how it can impact others. And that's what, what I'm getting from a lot of what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. It's so much about being aware of power, right? What is our relationship in terms of power to the community that we're taking something from or or working with? And then are we uplifting or are we causing harm? Mm -hmm. And for me, it's that those can actually be antidotes to appropriation or yeah, I I agree with you. You know, it's inevitable. We're all going to in some way appropriate. The world is, is very, you know, intertwined now, Mm -hmm. but it's very different for me to respectfully from within connect to a culture and then share it and cite my sources, right? That's also very important and say where something comes from than to take it and then not, you know, not credit. And I'll give a a concrete example. It's like if I quote at the beginning or end of my yoga class, a beautiful saying by, you know, say um, Audrey Lord or something Mm -hmm. like that, always citing the source. If I teach a class on self-care, naming where I got the idea even that self-care and community care go together. Mm. Because to be honest, a lot of that work is is from Black women. And so if I don't name that and I'm just like, oh, I'm a leader in self-care and community care, then I'm erasing that story too. And so we can Mm. be thoughtful and mindful, and we're not going to do it perfectly. And that's okay. I think it's about the intention. Mm. And then if we do cause harm, right, we miss something or erase someone really listening. And this is a yogic practice of satya, truthfulness. It's not just telling the truth. It's really deeply listening. So Mm -hmm. someone else's truth can be heard into Mm. being. Oh, I love that. Taking the time, yeah, to really deeply listen to a culture, to a community, to a person, to a moment. There's so much we can do there with with all of these things to be more intentional. Yeah, and it's funny. I wonder um, why so many people are resistant to learning and experiencing other cultures. It's It's such a weird thing for me because I thrive on it. And it's, I mean, I do, like, I'm always, you know, and well, here's a prime example. I live in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is one of the largest Indian populations in the country. My building where I live, the Diwali festival is like off the charts. Like, it was like, I was like, well, am I going to get an invite? Because I see this is fun. Like, it looks amazing. And there's a a little street uh, in in my neighborhood, Little India, as we call it, because it's like the most... Uh, populated, you know, shops and other people live there, Indians, shops, families, and restaurants. Mm. And it's like my favorite street. I will go down the street sometimes just mm. to feel good because it's mm. vibrant. 
and Hi. colorful and it smells so wonderful. I mean, it's not a long street, but I'll sometimes just walk down it because it change it, it, it changes my mood just to be exposed mm. in that environment. And so it's really a, a, a beautiful thing. And I am always so shocked at the whole, like, go back to where you come from mentality of so many people in this country or speak English. You're in America. And it's just, it seems to me so self-defeating for the soul. Mm. And the spirit of those people to never experience something mm-hmm. outside of themselves. And so I love that what you're actually talking about in the context of yoga is about, again, the mindfulness of the experiences of others and how yeah. to embrace those and, and learn from them. Yeah. And in many ways, the opposite of cultural appropriation is creativity, right? Mm-hmm. It's like being creative and tapping back into our own cultural practices. But I think about for a lot of dominant culture folks, they there were appropriations there too, right? Like pagans or earth-based practices that were taken over by different empires. And so perhaps it's that womb mm. not having gone back to their own roots. And so it's like take from others, but not in a respectful way because they're still kind of working on that. Yeah. Womb that I agree with you. You know, I remember I heard some comedians say like, Go back where you came from, but that means we're taking our food too. And then when you go- right. <laughs> right, right. I'm taking all of it. The barbecue is coming with me. The, the Mexicans are gonna take all the tacos. I mean, all the great delicious foods. And you know, you're right. And it's funny, you'll see very much people like that who will then go to the restaurants and get all the good the culture and the this and that while t- <laughs> while telling you to go back. That's pretty funny. I love that. And you know, and that brings me to another thought too, when it comes to yoga existing in the modern times like so we we i guess we can't completely negate that it is now a sort of commercialized practice because that's here to stay i would imagine so then how do you think practitioners uh can balance you know the the honor of the actual origins of yoga while still sort of keeping it in a modern context if you will i mean is there a balance there or is it kind of like a one-way or the other one, you know, my way or the highway, or is there a balance between the two? (laughs) I mean, I think it has to be a balance, right? And then the other thing is that yoga wasn't ever one way only. There Mm. were always different strands. It's not like we can point back and say, oh, this was the one true yoga. There were many different paths and there were, you know, kind of mystical paths that were more about devotion and then intellectual paths that were more about argument and debate and then physical paths. And so we get to, I think, explore that now. I, uh, for me, it's pretty clear that there's some things we can do, which is like in our workout or fitness yoga context, really be clear if we're just teaching asana. So meaning asana is the physical practice, mm-hmm. physical postures, or if we're also teaching philosophy, ethics, meditation, mm-hmm. mantra, which is like sacred sound, mudra, which are sacred gestures. And there's so much more benefit that students and teachers can get from bringing in these other things. But it's okay if you're teaching just asana to say, I'm teaching just asana or to call it fitness, you know, or yoga inspired fitness or something. And Mm. then let the people who really want to teach all of the other aspects of yoga say, oh, if you're looking for that, go here, right? Right, We can kind of network and resource each other. And then if you are teaching yoga, say where it comes from, you know, Mm. and, and there's something I think 
in our culture where we want to be like the one that invented it or the one that created it or put our brand on it. Oh, sure. There's something very powerful about saying this is a practice that's been here for thousands of years, and I'm going to share it with you for your greater peace or liberation or calm or, you know, to de-stress. And it can be very relevant. And I think if we don't hearken back or like point back to where it comes from in those practices, we miss out opportunities for more in the present moment. So there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of support that we can get actually by kind of doing the right thing and continuing to learn. So really being a student too of the yeah. practice. Being yeah. humble. My teacher would always laugh at me. He'd be like, when I thought I understood something, he'd be like, oh, you really think you get this now? <laughs> you just scratch the surface, you know, maybe mm. at the end of your life or in the next, you know, because his context, like in the next few lifetimes. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, uh, people believe that that is also how that works. You know, you kind of come back a few times until you get things, until <laughs> you get things worked out. And, mm. you know, it's it's funny too about that. I think, um, that is wise, you know, to sort of sometimes, you know, the public, the public has to have things sort of in a digestible way if, if, it's, mm-hmm. if it's a consumer public. So I love how you said, you know, you could introduce it like, you know, f- yoga, fitness inspired by yoga, and mm-hmm. then you have an, an, a gateway to educate once you get them in there. And for me personally, I would much rather discover that this thing I'm doing has origins that go back 4,000 years versus, you know, someone just made it up in Cleveland like two years ago. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's uh, it, there's a bigger, to me like, wow, this is a practice that's that ancient. This really must be good for me. And so uh, I think people would learn more about that, the educational component, that would be really a benefit to society right. and to yoga for the yoga practice. It would. And I think for also for folks to hear like yoga isn't denominational. It do, it doesn't belong to any one religion. It doesn't belong to any one group of people. It's for everyone. And we can still honor and name the folks that yoga came from, right? Mm-hmm. Which is South Asian folks, Indian folks. Um, but it's practiced by people of all religions. And even in ancient times, people who weren't people of faith, you know, by atheists. And mm-hmm. there's documentation of that by queer people, by trans people, by women, right? There's by young people, by old people, there's really, it's a kind of, it's been interesting to study it and practice it because it isn't, it's one of those practices that's not actually limited to a, to a certain group mm. and really never was, even though people have tried yeah, to, to make, make it. it. You're right, yeah. right. Yeah. And it's funny, like I said, to me, it was, I had avoided it for a long time because of the fact that I really felt like it was being marketed as this elitist thing that I couldn't afford it. And when I finally, oddly enough, when I finally did take my first yoga class with my partner, you know, years ago, we've been together 24 years now, but he took me to, because he loves yoga and he took me to my first class after I had been really resistant for a while. I was like, eh, it's not for me. And, and, you know, there was this very like blonde, crunchy granola girl, you know, teaching the class. And it was like an episode of Friends or something, you know, looked like. And I just was like, this didn't feel like it had mm. the depth that I thought I was going to get from yoga because I understood where it had come from just by reading. And I thought this like class I was taking in Chelsea that looked like uh, I was in like, um, you know, Beverly Hills gym almost and, uh, you know, all these really pretty people. And it just didn't make sense for what I thought yoga was. And so I'm kind of getting validated with maybe that was why I didn't enjoy the class and I might have benefited or I may benefit from a class that is much more organic with the actual, you know, more connection to the practice itself versus the commercialized version. 
Right. I oh think God. absolutely. And and it's hard too because we don't realize what we don't realize, right? And mm-hmm. so that teacher may not have had the understanding that just by doing it or those other practitioners, they were leaving folks out. But yeah. I actually would ask for yoga teachers, if there's any listening, to think about that. And and even yoga practitioners to think about who we're leaving out. And then how can we bring those folks in, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's not being in your fancy Chelsea studio and being like, oh, people come to me. It's actually going to other mm-hmm. communities. Right. Like one thing I do when I mo- I've moved quite a bit, when I go into a new city or town, I look for nonprofits doing work that's aligned, right? Because yoga is also service, seva. And I'll connect and go in and volunteer and then say, hey, I do yoga and meditation. Would that be helpful for your community? Mm. And then lead classes if they say yes and they want it within their community, right? So it's it's a lot, I think, about building relationship. And then also, I just want to say, because I hope that you find, I hope you try it again. And that, and for anyone listening who hasn't uh, felt like going to yoga, there are teachers out there like you, right? There are teachers who will understand you. And and even if they're not like you, they'll care enough to listen and to connect and to Mm. try to tailor the practice to what you need or what you want. And they're often not, you know, on the billboards or like headlining. (laughs) Right, right. Studio, It might be in a community center or YMCA or, you know, and, and I think there is this change that's coming in wellness, because for so many of us, there's all these health problems like chronic anxiety, mm. depression, loneliness, insomnia, things that are really real and that yoga actually has very real solutions for. Mm. But, and there are teachers prepared to help, but that we're just not quite culturally like at the point where we connected those two things and are able to communicate them very clearly so people don't realize what's available or what could be available. But I think we'll see that shift in the next few years. Thank you so much, Susanna. Wow. Okay. So I'm inspired and I'm going to um, look into maybe doing another yoga class. And, I'm happy uh, to suggest some folks for you. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm going to reach yeah, yeah. out. I'm going to reach out then and get some <laughs> suggestions because especially now, another great point, you know, as I'm getting older now, it's not just about, oh, I want to go do something trendy. I do know that there are benefits the health benefits. So uh, I'm kind of really looking for for that reason too, for more practical reason to be also does your, does your partner still practice? Um, he's not as um, active as he was when he was going to classes, but he literally every morning he gets up and he does a series of poses and stretches and he really starts his day with it. Like he literally, and he's older than me by a few years. And so to him, it's a really a way of life from the physical standpoint. He just feels like he has his morning time because I'm not a morning person. So I'll be still, <laughs> I'll be still sleeping and he has to have to himself quiet for those like first couple hours, you know, he's up at five or something and that's his yoga time. And so, yeah, he still does it in that regard. It's a, it's a personal uh, self-care part of his routine. So That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you so much for being here today with us and, uh, you know, keep being a, a, a visionary and enlightening the world as you do and the whole place we're, we're better for it. So I thank you. So thanks for being here today thank on you Motivational so Mondays. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.